and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast and legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Akram Fizer, professor of law at the Lincoln Memorial Duncan School of Law. We will discuss his article, Seven Steps to Reform the Tax Code and Engender Socioeconomic Mobility, published in the Albany Law Review. Welcome, Professor Fizer. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest. So let's begin by talking about why you wrote this article and what's the main crux of your argument within the paper. The reason why I wrote the article, Luce, has to deal with uh, my way of trying to understand what I think is an uptick in authoritarian illiberalism in, in developed democracies, namely the United States with the Trump phenomenon, the United Kingdom with the Brexit phenomenon. And what I've noticed is the rise of far-right authoritarianism uh, that is very, very hostile uh, to especially to not only migrants, but increasingly minorities and people who are uh, uh, who are more vulnerable within the uh, within the broader public. And I've been trying to understand for the last several years why is this the case? You know, and I, I've been bothered by it. And one thing that seems to be a constant explanation for the rise of sort of authoritarian liberalism within the electorate is socioeconomic immobility for the majority of the of the native-born public within mature democracies. So here in the United States, notwithstanding the fact we've had relatively strong economic growth in the last generation, we've seen socioeconomic immobility for the majority of the American public. In other words, in real terms, the average American, the vast majority of Americans have not seen their living standards materially improve. And this then brought the, brought home to me, my supposition was, why is this the case? And so, Luce, the anecdote I, I mentioned in my article is I typically on most days try to get a quick workout in at the YMCA as I get older, as I try to sort of fight off the pounds. And I, while I was at the Y several years ago, I was, uh, I was talking to one, a gentleman who was probably one of the wealthiest men in East Tennessee, and I was talking to him about why he keeps such a punishing work schedule. He typically works between 50 or 60 hours a week. And he told me that right now in the organization he works with, he makes so much money that he makes way more money than he feels his children or grandchildren could possibly earn uh, over a feasible time period. And he feels, notwithstanding the fact he's completely financially secure, he would rather earn that money, save the money, and then uh, and save the vast bulk of it with low income tax rates, and then bequeath it to his kids and grandkids because of very, very low estate tax rates, such that he'd be able to take care of his grandkids and great grandkids uh, in a way that they'd never be able to support themselves. And I was thinking that this seemed very benevolently motivated for his family. But I was also thinking that this probably explains why it's so difficult for less well-positioned Americans to improve their livelihoods, right? Because the consequence of him having such a large pay package is most likely his organization doesn't have the resources to hire new people, right? 
or offer pay, pay increases to less well-situated workers, right? So the fact that he continues to have a eight-figure salary plausibly means there's not enough money within the organization he works at for a 4% pay raise for the average worker or to hire new workers at a living wage. And I was thinking that this situation plausibly is paradigmatic throughout the United States and in other countries like the United Kingdom. And, and I, I think the reason behind it is an inadvertent consequence of the Reagan tax cuts that were fortified by the Bush tax cuts. And the reason I say so is I think the supposition by those who pushed for the Reagan and Bush tax cuts was a benevolent one, which is to encourage work, industry savings, and therefore encourage worker productivity and improve living standards for all Americans. But I think the inadvertent consequence of these tax cuts has been to have well-positioned workers push for bigger and bigger pay packages. So to illustrate, right, basically, if we were to go back in time to the era of, let's say, Jimmy Carter, when the marginal income tax rates for very high income earning people were north of 70 percent, people didn't have that huge an incentive to push for an eight figure pay package because 70 percent of that could be taken by the central government, right, by the taxing authority. But in today's America, where the pay packet where the marginal tax rate at the highest rate is now only 35% or 37%, sorry. And where if in, in situations where much of that could be deferred compensation in the form of, of, uh, of uh, stock options and the rest, where it could be characterized as passive income, where the marginal tax rate could be, you know, 15%. Many people who are well positioned are pushing for bigger and bigger pay packages because they have every incentive to do so. And the result, I think, has been that most organizations, especially large ones, tend to distort compensation in favor of the biggest income earners who are well-positioned to negotiate for such compensation to the detriment of the average worker. And I think this explains why for many Americans there has not been a material living standard improvement since the time of the Reagan tax cuts. So let's go through the history of how this tax, this current tax system developed. Let's go back to uh, 1970s, 1980s, the Reagan tax cuts. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so, so Ronald Reagan adopted the tax policies of an economist named Arthur Laffer. And Laffer proposed what's called the Laffer curve, saying that we had his argument was, and he didn't really support it empirically, he, he, he made an ideological argument. The argument went as follows. He said, if the government taxes at 0%, it'll, con it'll generate zero revenue. But he also said taxing, and this makes sense, at 100% raises zero revenue as well because nobody will work, right? So Laffer's claim was the way things were in the U.S. economy, that actually the government would be able to collect more revenue by cutting taxes because of the You'd, sh uh, you'd shift the supply curve, as it's called. That's why it's called a supply-side tax cut, to generate more revenue by actually cutting tax rates. And this made sense to Reagan. Reagan, to his, uh, to his credit, ran, ran for the presidency in 1980 on these tax cuts. And when Reagan came in in 1981, one of the first things he did was to dramatically reduce the marginal income tax rates from high-income earning, for high-income earners from 
the high rate of 70% of people earning in the seven figures to one that uh, where the high rate was reduced to 28%, right? And this, I think, had a huge effect in terms of income asymmetry because it enabled wealthy, wealthy individuals to basically retain the bulk of a high compensation pay package in a way that was not the case before. Now, the key thing is, Reagan did dramatically reduce marginal income taxes, but he actually, with bipartisan support, did raise payroll taxes. So there's a difference. Most of us Americans think of all the taxes we pay as income tax, but actually the majority of Americans pay more what's called payroll tax than income tax. So the payroll tax, which is the 15.3% of our paycheck that goes if we're self-employed or 7.65% of our paycheck that goes to the federal government to pay for pensions and senior health care, Medicare, is actually not officially considered a tax by the federal government. It's actually considered a payroll deduction for to fund the Social Security and Medicare trust funds to pay for our retirement as we get older. But the reality is the federal government actually treats that money as general revenue, and that money is, in effect, a tax. And for close to 80% of Americans, we end up paying more payroll than income tax. And that payroll tax that Reagan didn't cut, in conjunction with the tax cuts he made at the income level, have meant that we've, our, pay, our tax system has become a lot more regressive which means it's, it's actually much more punitive on the poor than it once was. So then let's go a little bit forward into the future. Let's talk about the 1990s Clinton era. Uh, Clinton was real big in his campaign talking about uh, a failed economic theory. So what was the tax rates and the tax policy during the Clinton administration? So in the Clinton administration, what happened was what, what happened during the Reagan administration and the Bush administrations is we ran into huge budget. We were accumulated large budget deficits. That means every year the government was spending more money than it was collecting by, via the IRS. So the government, in terms of what it was collecting from the payroll tax, the income tax, customs taxes, estate taxes, and the rest, it was spending dramatically more than it was collecting, largely because we we have a you know the government has huge obligations for things like pensions, healthcare, infrastructure, grants to the states, national security, and interest on the debt. And when Clinton was elected in 1992, uh, he was promising to change the American economies, basically to reverse the scenario where American industry was in decline, so that American workers would get living wages. But as soon as he entered into office. He was confronted with the problem that uh, his advisors basically told him that the debt load was getting to a point that if he didn't dramatically raise tax rates and deal with the deficit problem, the economy and the bond markets would react negatively. In other words, uh, right now we pay on the relatively low interest rates to, to international investors who buy our debt. Clinton's advisors, including people such as Robert Rubin, his then chairman of the economic advisors, 
subsequently his treasury secretary and other advisors said, you have to raise rates to basically ensure confidence in the bond market. And that's what Clinton proposed. And as a result, Clinton raised the highest marginal income tax rates from the low 30% level to close to 40% for people earning over, over basically over 300,000. So basically, once your income reached above 300,000, the, the marginal tax rate the federal government charged would be close to 40%. Clinton himself did not affect the payroll tax. He didn't alter the payroll tax. And that I think that's largely because the base of the Democratic Party did, was afraid and would not want to have affected the fiscal viability of either Social Security or Medicare, which remain firmaments of the U.S. safety net. So Clinton raised the marginal income tax rates uh, after 1993 when he came into office to 39.6% for higher incomes. And he, no Republican voted for this. And Clinton was accused of enacting a plan that would destroy the U.S. economy. What resulted was uh, a very high levels of, uh, quite high levels of economic growth. And for a period of eight years, at least, some remediation of socioeconomic inequality. In other words, there was wage growth for lower income earners, not but high income earners did very, very well because the stock market boomed during his years in office. And we saw, for example, uh, a, a booming stock market, a tech market, all that, uh, the tech bubble, all those things ensued. So Clinton raised marginal income tax rates. He didn't alter the payroll tax, but his increasing the marginal income tax rates was proved successful because it led to it, it coincided with a with a stock market and stock market and Main Street boom of the likes that we haven't really seen. We never saw that in the Reagan era because of the Reagan era boom was not quite as well balanced, and the supposition was when Clinton left office that all the budget deficits that had been accumulated were now change and become budget surpluses as George W. Bush took office as president. And of course, that never materialized. So now let's go on to the early 2000s to 2008. Uh, what was the tax landscape during the George W. Bush administration? So when, when, when Bush came into office, the supposition was based on existing tax rates and based on es estimates of at the time, that we would have roughly $5.6 trillion, I believe it was $5.6 trillion in surpluses, uh, uh, right? And sorry, that we would have such huge surpluses in the foreseeable future, many of Bush's advisors and Bush himself advocated to cut income tax rates going forward, which is what Bush did on assuming office in 2001. Right? And the and so when Bush came into office, he, there was an immediate marginal income tax cut, right, that ostensibly was there to basically return the $5.6 trillion in surpluses over the next decade. But indeed, it basically exacerbated the deficits because those surpluses never materialized. And if you factor that in, in, in other words, we had lower than anticipated economic growth. We had, of course, the tragedy of 9-11 and then the cost of the unanticipated at the time wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
We also had a financial crisis. So those that that four point five point six one trillion dollars in anticipated surpluses, right, ended up being ten trillion dollars in accumulated deficits in debt. Make sense? And that was the legacy. And what happened was Bush ended up cutting the Clinton high income tax rate of 39% and made it a high income tax rate of 35% for incomes above 374,000. So Bush reduced the marginal income tax rate by almost 5% for high income earners and he reduced it for other income earners. And he also, once again, didn't alter the payroll tax. So notice now we have a framework where the Bush basically brought us back to a trajectory of lower marginal income tax rates. And those marginal income tax rates are continuing a process whereby high income earners and high wealth individuals are pushing for bigger and bigger pay packages from the organizations they work in. To the, and there's been no altering of the payroll tax. And unlike the income tax, the payroll tax starts kicking in on the first dollar of income you earn, right? So at a very low income, for example, people earning below 15,000, you pay no income tax. But the first dollar you earn, you pay, you, pay, no pay, you pay payroll tax. And especially if you're an independent contractor, by way of example, a plumber, or you know, increasingly employees are being designated by the employers as independent contractors, which means they have to pay both the they have to pay the full 15.3% payroll tax. And that gets to be, once you add that on with income taxes and other tax burdens, pretty punitive, right? So now let's go on to 2008 onwards to the 2010s. What is the tax landscape of Obama? And then after that, towards into the Trump administration. Well, I think what happened when President Obama assumed office in January 2009 he didn't really alter the tax structure. Remember, rather than altering taxes, his focus was two things. One is remediating the financial crisis so that he used and he continued Bush's policy of massive deficit spending to basically resuscitate demand in the economy. And I think he was somewhat successful in that, though it probably took longer than anyone anticipated, in conjunction with moving to get universal health care. In other words, uh, universal health care through the Affordable Care Act. And he largely achieved both things, but he was not successful in remediating what I would say is the unequal tax landscape. In other words, the tax landscape he left us was largely the one that the Bush administration left us, largely because by the time the, the Obama administration shifted focus to taxes, it was the, the Congress was in the control of the Republican Party which was quite insistent that we maintain a low income tax and a low estate tax framework. And so what happened is the Obama administration largely left in place the tax framework of the Bush people. Now, he raised it the highest income tax level, uh, but it kicked in at a much higher level of income. So there was really not any real increase in revenue brought in by uh, the income tax increases the Obama administration brought in. He did, to his credit, during the financial crisis, in, um, bring in a temporary cut in the payroll tax, but that expired after his first two years in office. 
So as President Obama left office, we started to see, we saw huge, let's be clear, at the end of the Bush administration, because of the financial crisis, we saw huge budget deficits. They were continued by and large in the first few years of the Obama administration, and then they started to narrow and be reduced. Of course, when President Obama left office, it looked like we were slowly narrowing the budget deficits again. But the problem is there's just not enough income being generated through the income tax system to remediate those deficits. And the problem is those that low marginal income tax framework is, in, is furthering the problem of income and wealth inequality that I think is making many Americans feel socioeconomically immobile. So then let's go on to the recent legislation on tax reform, mainly the Trump administration's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. What, that, the, what does that entail for the landscape of tax today? Well, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think it's, it's a mistake to call it a Trump administration tax cut. I think it was really the Paul Ryan tax cut. In other words, I think uh, President Trump really didn't pay attention. What he wanted to do was sign a tax cut into law to, to present a legislative achievement, and he delegated that to the Republican, then Republican-controlled House of Representatives to enact. He had then a Republican-controlled Senate to push through, and therefore what he was able to do with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is reduce the the marginal income tax rates even further, right? So we ha- we saw, for example, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that the highest tax rates, right? The first thing is the income taxes, the highest rate went from close to 40,000 for people over, from 40% for people over 400,000 to now one where it's 37%, but it only kicks in at people earning over a half million dollars, right? So if you make $501,000, the high rate of 37% only applies to the $1 that's about $500,000. So he brought in a, a further reduction of marginal income taxes, which I think would further the problem I've talked about. But then he went further and he cut the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21%, which in turn is also worsening the income and wealth inequality problem for this reason. What most corporations do with a marginal income tax rate cut Marginal, with with the corporate tax cut is they do share buybacks, which means those of us who own shares are seeing an uptick in our share valuations. But who owns shares in this country? It's not your typical average worker. It's high income earners, right? So what the Trump tax cuts are in, in effect doing, uh, and what we're I think going to likely see in the long term is, though the president was elected, I think to address. Uh, some of the socioeconomic immobility faced by many workers. I think he's doing some things plausibly, you could, I could argue, to worsen the problem, which is income tax and corporate tax cut rates that will actually make high income earners walk away with the bigger and bigger package portion of the pie. So now let's go on to uh, the alternative. Within your papers entitled Seven Steps to truly reform the tax code and engender socioeconomic mobility. Can you briefly go over what these seven steps are? Okay. So I was, the whole premise behind my, uh, behind my proposal is the, the notion of triggers. And I got the notion of triggers. I was reading a biography uh, by the excellent uh, 
journalist Sebastian Malaby of the great Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan. And in his biography of, of Greenspan, Malaby mentioned, talks about a moment when the incoming George W. Bush administration is coming to office and they want uh, Paul O'Neill to be their incoming Treasury Secretary. And they propose, as I said earlier, the Bush people propose a marginal income tax cut to stimulate the economy and, the, and return an anticipated 5.6 trillion dollars in government surpluses to the American taxpaying public that they think will materialize in 2000, 2001, that time frame. And as I said, they never materialized. And what O'Neill recommended was trigger such that if the tax cuts, if the, if, if the revenues aren't materializing from the tax cuts or deficits start resuscitating, the tax cuts will be reversed so that we don't incur deficit spending. And O'Neill's recommendation was rejected by the president and his advisors, including, of course, the most important being former Vice President Dick Cheney, who basically took the position that tax cuts, that deficits don't matter. So what Bush and Cheney basically did, I think lamentably, was disregard their incoming Treasury Secretary's advice to implement triggers. And the reason I think triggers are useful, Luce, is because I think that the, one of the reasons why uh, Democratic candidates aren't able to convince the public as to the importance of not cutting taxes is the public just does not trust the federal government. In other words, the, federal, the public believes if we agree to tax increases, the government will merely misspend the money as opposed to address issues of public concern. And my, my supposition is if we have triggers implemented such that we say that every dollar of tax increase will not be just go to the government to do it what it likes, but actually be set aside specifically and stipended for various things, I think the public could be brought along. And here what, I'm, what my argument is, is that one of the real problematic things in the American tax code is the payroll tax, because the payroll tax is a very regressive tax that acts, let's be honest, as a disincentive to employment and work. In other words, it makes it less likely that you would employ me as an employee, which makes it less likely I'll be able to get a job with you and work, right? That's how that's the pernicious consequence of the payroll tax. And because it kicks in at the first dollar and is capped at basically $132,000, it means that someone making $132,000 pays the exact amount of payroll tax as Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. So it's extremely progressive, right? And my argument, though, is the problem is how do you cut the payroll tax while still preserving the safety net, other Social Security and Medicare that are necessary for most people, especially people who don't have much savings because of income stagnation? And my argument is we can do that if we bring in other taxes to recoup the Social Security money. But as I said, the public doesn't like other taxes. So how do we get them to cooperate with these other taxes, these other taxes? And my other taxes are set forth in my seven steps. And my supposition is we could get the public to buy in to a elimination of the payroll tax and the absorption of new taxes if we promise the public that that money is directly stipended to paying to, to, to fund pension and Medicare and that triggers will be implemented to ensure that the money won't go in 
will not be used for other things that the public may disagree with. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So let's go through step by step about what you suggest. Your first step is an elimination of the federal payroll tax. Yes. So the first one is an immediate $1 trillion plus tax cut for all Americans, eliminate the payroll tax that currently funds Social Security and Medicare. And that would have the fortuitous benefit of enabling people to hire a nanny and not worry about nanny taxes, right? Think of how many people struggle with nanny taxes and affordable childcare. It'll enable people, for example, to with lower skills to keep a, a larger portion of their paycheck. It will enable employers to hire more people because it will lower the overall cost of employment. So we can, I think, all stipulate that the elimination of the payroll tax, far more, the, far more than cutting income taxes and estate taxes, will stimulate employment and wage growth in the economy and help remediate for some of the socioeconomic immobility. Right. So give an example. Let's say, for example, you're a worker and you may be, a, a, let's say, a, 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 a worker who's paid a salary of $40,000 in this country. Eliminating the Social Security and Medicare tax will mean you get a 7.65% tax cut and your employer gets a 7.65% tax cut, which makes it more likely that they'll have some money to give you a raise. More likely you have more money to basically do with as you want, or maybe give yourself a vacation, things like that, and improve your fiscal predicament, right? That would be very useful. The problem is those payroll taxes pay for two, two key components of our safety net, which is Social Security and Medicare. And we can stipulate all Americans need a pension and all Americans need health care as they age. So how do we still provide that? And my argument is we still provide that by bringing in additional take taxes that are less regressive to, in effect, pay for the payroll tax cut that will do so much to improve socioeconomic immobility. So your second step is broadening the estate tax. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So it used to be that the estate tax would apply, you know, before the Reagan era. Uh, when Reagan came in, the estate tax, which basically is a tax that kicks in when you purport to convey money from to the next generation. So, for example, if my wife and I want to leave money to our daughter, if the, the estate was large enough, she'd have to pay estate tax on the money she received from us. But after basically the Reagan era, we started raising the threshold of the estate tax to one that whereby it basically is only paid by the super rich. And right now, under the Trump administration, before that even the Obama period, you basically had to you have to be in the richest 0.2% of households for the estate tax to kick in. So right now, you have to have more than $12 million to convey to your children before estate tax tax applies. That makes sense? Right? Which means it's very, very few people who pay for it. And my argument is, I recognize that I, you know, someone who's about who's conveying money to their children would rather not pay estate tax. But very plausibly, that person is in a better position to pay taxes than, let's say, a plumber or a nanny. So why not cut taxes for the plumber or nanny who pays punitive payroll tax and allow people, let's say, expand those who are paying the payroll, the estate tax from the richest 0.2%, in other words, those whose wealth is 
north of $12 million to, let's say, just millionaires, the richest 5%. And that would, in my view, raise about $85 billion more a year to help recoup the trillion-dollar tax cut that is the elimination of the payroll tax. And your third point is recipients of bequests no longer receive automatically stepped-up basis to avoid tax liability. Can you explain that and what the impact of that would be? Okay, so under the existing tax laws, we have a strange thing that happens, right? Which goes like this. Assume I assume I buy a home for $100,000 and assume now, Luce, you're my child and I convey it to you as my child during our lifetime, okay? Now, because that home is worth $300,000 because 20, 30 years have passed, there's, there's certain tax liabilities from earning, from receiving a capital gains that should apply. Right? That makes sense, kind of? Yes. Right? You've got basically... If I if I give it to you, you're you've received now a three hundred thousand dollar as opposed to a hundred thousand dollar asset. That makes sense. Yes. But in a weird way, under inheritance law, what we do is, if I was to convey that to you as my child when I die, you assume it on a, on under a new basis, not the hundred thousand, but the three hundred thousand dollars when you inherit it from me. In other words. Under our tax laws, we have an incentive not to convey it to you during our lifetimes, but only upon death. And at that stage, we take up the new market value basis when you inherit it. That makes sense? Yes. And that has the inadvertent consequence of me holding on to it and conveying it to you on death rather than giving it to you earlier. And it's a tax windfall to the children of the very wealthy, right? So that makes sense. Yeah, do you make does that make sense to you? Yes. So the thing, and I recognize it's not we don't like to have to pay taxes, but isn't it more fair to generate some revenue from someone who's receiving, let's say, a stock portfolio or a single family home for free than to charge taxes to someone who's struggling with nanny taxes? That makes sense, right? And my the estimates are eliminating this this. This strange system, right? Uh, auto, uh, eliminating automatically stepped up basis will generate another fifty billion a year in tax revenue. Okay. So your fourth point is implementing a one dollar per gallon gas tax uh, nationwide. Okay. So my, uh, if you were to look at, we all think we pay too much for petroleum. I am tempted to do say the same thing. That's one of the reasons my wife and I bought a Prius. However, if you look at it, I pay here in Knoxville roughly two fifty a gallon for a gallon of gas. That is dramatically less than anyone else in the developed world. So, for example, you'll pay seven eight dollars in Paris, seven eight dollars in Berlin, seven eight dollars in London, and you probably pay four to five dollars for a gallon in Canada. And so, raising the a dollar a gallon gas tax to make my tax bill not two fifty but three fifty. I think would not make our would not make the American tax bill a gas bill too high, and it would also help fund to the tune of a hundred billion dollars. It'll pay for part of the payroll tax cut. Now, recognize no one likes to pay gas taxes, right? 
But I think the American public would would sign on to a gas tax increase if they knew that the revenue was used to pay for pensions and health care and was and paid for partly paid for a payroll tax cut. Second, let's we have to be honest with the public. Right? What is the consequence of us constantly, you know, buying bigger and bigger cars that use more and more gas and over-consuming petroleum, right? I recognize many people don't want to think about global warming and carbon footprints, but that does have a consequence, right? And if you don't like the direct consequences, maybe it doesn't affect us in the United States directly, but it does affect people more in the developing world, and we feel, feel the consequences of that in, in, in cases of things like state failure or migration to our country, which people disapprove of, right? Raising the gas tax, I think, and minimizing our carbon footprint, I think, will minimize the likelihood of things like state dislocation and all kinds of other problems we face internationally. Moreover, if over time, we, uh, if the DAC, if uh, with the dollar per gallon gas tax, I think we will over time uh, consume sufficiently less petroleum to incentivize other things, like public transport, and, you know, maybe better neighborhood living patterns and shorter commutes, so that you know, over time, we become less dependent or, uh, you know, we encourage democratization in currently oil exporting authoritarian regimes, right? Like, look at countries like Russia that are very dependent on oil exports for revenue. Well, one of the reasons Russia, you could argue, hasn't democratized is it generates so much revenue on oil exports. Same with some of the Gulf Arab countries that are the source of funding for, let's say, jihadi terrorism at times. Or... You know, our our enemy, the Islamic Republic of Iran, I call it our enemy because that's the position the Trump administration has taken, but it's also been a position successive governments have taken. One of the reasons Iran has not democratized sufficiently or is, you know, is is under is has taken an authoritarian uh, approach to many things is its ability to export petroleum. Right? And so my supposition is if we were to. Uh, shift that paradigm, I think we achieve many various domestic and foreign policy goals that I think have been elusive for American government policy makers. So another one of your steps is ending the mortgage interest tax deduction. Yeah, yeah. So right now, as it goes, I mean, the Trump administration narrowed it somewhat, but historically, the mortgage interest tax deduction was a huge subsidy for the wealthy, right? Because if you think about it, if you buy a $5 million home, the mortgage interest on that $5 million home will be staggering, right? And that would be all deductible from income. So if you looked at, let's say, for example, the average American earner, income earner, doesn't benefit from the mortgage interest tax deduction because the standardized deduction on their, on their taxes is large enough to, to make it for them to just take the standardized deduction. In other words, the typical standardized deduction of whatever it is, $12,000 per individual, right? But if you're paying a huge mortgage interest on, on a home, let's say in a well fancy part of San Francisco or uh, Seattle or Los Angeles or New York City, the mortgage interest on that will be so high that you actually could eliminate your tax liability if let's say you're a, a partner at a law firm by use of the mortgage interest tax deduction. But notice that tax deduction, which basically deprives the government of 70 plus billion a year, only benefits the very wealthiest Americans. And recognizing no one likes to raise taxes, 
I think it still would be preferable uh, to uh, continuing with the payroll tax. And then your next uh, recommendation is the 8% national sales tax. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of the value-added taxes that are prevalent in Asia and Europe and Canada. Exactly. And notice the countries that have had, uh, Canada has a 13% or I think Canada has a 5% federal sales tax. And it has about, each of the provinces has, have their version of it, which is harmonized. So you typically, if you, let's say, were to buy something in Toronto, you'll pay what's called a 12 or 13% harmonized sales tax or VAT. If you were to go to Western Europe, you'd pay something around 20%. And no one likes paying those taxes, but they are preferable to payroll taxes, which are the most regressive taxes. So those countries, sure enough, they do have unpopular value-added taxes, VATs, and this would be unpopular. But it's not as problematic as the payroll tax because it doesn't disincentivize employment. And let's face it, it will, to some degree, encourage and cultivate some level of savings in the public, right? I think many of us struggle, even those of us who have above-average incomes, to save. There's a tendency to overconsume, right? And the and overconsumption doesn't necessarily increase happiness. It just has a tendency to increase socioeconomic stress because our household saving rates tend to be lower than they should be. In other words, all of us, myself included, are tempted to overconsume. Okay? My supposition is uh, uh, a national sales tax will generate revenue, reduce our dependence on the payroll tax, and encourage, I think, a level of thrift and savings in the broader public that I think will make all of us over time uh, a little happier and less, less, little less socioeconomically insecure. And your final proposal is quite interesting. It goes back to the triggers that if the uh, revenue is too low, then it will automatically increase. And if the revenues are in excess, it will automatically decrease. Can you explain why you proposed this? Uh, it was basically my anecdote from earlier about that came, it came from Treasury Secretary, uh, 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 Treasury uh, former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill, who recommended that we adopt that when we brought in the Bush tax cuts in 2001. And we didn't adopt it. We disregarded his advice. The result was huge budget deficits that led to that have led to a situation where we have 20 almost 20 trillion dollars in government debt um, and pronounced socioeconomic immobility right so the government we have huge debt which means the government doesn't lacks resources and it's harder for the government to address things like socioeconomic immobility by things like progressive social welfare legislation and my argument is the triggers are necessary to convince the public and deal with the problem of, of general public distrust in government that I think is very prevalent in American society that makes it difficult for, let's say, progressive politicians, think of a Bernie Sanders, to get maybe the support they need should they ever win office. So, for example, President Obama, I think, struggled with getting broader public support to enact progressive social welfare legislation, I think partly because the public doesn't trust the government. And my argument is if we brought in triggers to say we're bringing these, these taxes not to, to regressively tax you or not because you want a cash grab, but to pay for 
the entitlement programs and no more, no less, such that if the revenue taken in is greater than we anticipate, we're going to revise those taxes downwards the next year. Or if it's more than, or if it's less than anticipated, we'll raise it the following year. If we show the public that we are raising the money, that we're enacting taxes for stipended reasons, I think we deal with the distrust in government problem that I think bedevils uh, people who want to bring in social welfare legislation in the United States. So, big question. Why does this all matter? I think it all matters, I think, because I think we have to find a way to deal with the broader public's concern about socioeconomic immobility. I think we're going through a scenario, right, where people feel that their living standards are not improving over time, but are actually regressing with time. And we have to find policies that realistically can address it, not magic bullet policies, and I stipulate, this is not an easy short-term fix. This is not something that you may, that, that people will jump onto. It doesn't seem like an easy fix. You know, People are much more keen on hearing things like free college or free healthcare. But those things come with tax cuts and they create, those policies have problems too. And my supposition is if we make changes in our tax code, it may be difficult to enact. But I think this proposal will over time mean that fewer and fewer Americans will feel socioeconomic stagnation. They'll be able to keep a larger share of their paychecks. They'll have an incentive to save. And people who are higher, better positioned, right, over time, right, will, uh, if we remediate the tax increases, let's say we need to reverse the tax increases, they won't necessarily push for such huge, right, huge pay packages, right? So, for example, by raising the estate tax, I say, for example, that we don't necessarily, we'll only get 85 billion a year. 85 billion is not that much money for the federal government. The federal government spends 4 trillion plus a year. But I think the auspicious consequence of the estate tax increase will be to have better placed employees not push for such huge sizable pay packages for purposes solely of bequeathing that money to their kids and grandkids. And for a final question, what should legislators, people, and because we just had two Democratic debates, presidential candidates take away from your paper? I think all I would ask for them is to consider it as a potential. I think what happens is I think we've been stuck with the regressive payroll tax framework, partly because uh, progressive politicians have been stuck with this reality, which is the only firmament of the American safety net that have been, that have that has remained popular with the broader public has been Social Security and Medicare, right? Now, you've noticed even President Trump has quite shrewdly, to maintain his support base, strongly said that we should not touch Social Security and Medicare. The problem is, I and I think what they could, what, my proposal is potentially useful at looking at if it was looked at, is it's a means of protecting the safety net, Social Security and Medicare, while reallocating the tax structure to be more progressive and not so harmful on lower-income individuals. All right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Pfizer, for this very interesting proposal, this great paper, and a very well-rounded look at all of these issues. You're very kind, Luz. Thank you. It's been a true pleasure.
Hey, Walter, we need some cigarettes. Let's go in and get a pack. Okay. Hello, boys. What can I do for you? I have a pack of cigarettes. All right. Here you are. Be three cents more, though. What's that for? Sales tax. Haven't you ever heard of sales tax? I sure haven't. What's going to happen next, man? You know they got a law here to call sale tax. Sale tax? What is that for? That's three cent tax on everything is sold. They said that's the government's rule. The government's rule? Well, there's lots of things sold that the government knows anything about. Well, I'll just sing a little song about these sale tax. This time now ain't suiting me. Corn is costing a dollar three. All the sale tax is on it. I never seen the like since I've been born. The women got sale tax on the stuff at home. All the sale taxes on it. All the sale taxes on it. All the sale taxes on it. Everywhere you go. You know these sale taxes are paying. Oh, the sale tax is on it. All the sale tax is 